Welcome to Sleep Talk, the podcast about all things sleep, brought to you by sleephub.com.au. Here are your hosts, Dr. David Cunnington and Dr. Moira Junger. So welcome to episode 64 of Sleep Talk, the podcast talking all things sleep. And hi again, Moira. Hi, Dave. So the topic we're going to talk about in this podcast is borderline personality disorder. And really one of the triggers for that, in part, is because I've been doing some professional development myself around this area, because it is something we commonly see. And the other reason to talk about it is exactly that. This is something that has sleep problems associated with it pretty commonly. And so people with borderline personality disorder are overrepresented in people coming to sleep clinics. And, you know, it's something we'll, we'll often see in clinical practice more. Yeah, for sure. But then I think it's important to say up front is that we, they won't necessarily have that on the history. Like they won't necessarily say they have that label. Um, the GP hasn't talked about it. So they might, some, sometimes they don't know they've never been given that diagnosis. Although it's clear to the people working with them, it might be clear to you. So that's, that's a bit of a, it's a, a problem. It was an ethical dilemma for me and sometimes perplexing that I wonder, because I feel like I can pick, I certainly have done a lot of reading and certainly no diagnostic criteria, et cetera. But I would say in all of my long clinical years, like over 20 years, there would be less than a handful of people who have actually, we overtly talk about it, like they've told me that that's their label. They've been given that diagnosis. What about you? Do you find that that's, I mean, how, what's the percentage-wise of people who you think might have borderline personality disorder and those that, that, that you overtly talk about it? Very similar experience to yourself, Moira. Mm-hmm. So quite common that it's not a label that someone's been given. Mm-hmm. But when I think about does this individual have issues with emotion regulation, may they have been exposed to early life trauma, or do they have problems with establishing stable relationships, yeah, that's often pretty common because mm-hmm. those um, features go with difficulty turning off at night and having mm-hmm. insomnia. So, yeah, it is actually pretty common. There's not great research in this area, interestingly, but some series have shown it's about 20-odd percent of people presenting to sleep clinics have a personality disorder, be it borderline or narcissistic personality disorders, also common in people presenting with insomnia. So having an understanding of this, I think, is really important for us as clinicians. Sometimes it's diagnostic insofar as you have done all your general treatments, like standard sort of things and in standard hours, in standard timeframes, but then there can be just things that are a bit tricky. Just, you know, that the person's just, they're just not responding or they're not available, a bit chaotic in their attendance or they're, they're sort of desperate and then you end up seeing them sort of after five when you normally wouldn't. And that, that sort of a pattern sometimes I find clues me into thinking, oh, I think there's, one, there's something more at play here than, than what I was told from the GP or from the sleep physician. Yeah, and I find myself doing that as well. I'm always thinking if I do something that's not in my ordinary practice, then I'm going, why did I do that? Why have I done something differently mm. in this case compared to how I've managed other cases? And it's yeah. usually that's inf- that's informative, that that reflection. Yeah, access to sort of, you know, things going on just yeah. to alert you to. And in terms of uh, sort of diagnosis, there is an emerging of diagnosis, not yet in the DSM, of complex PTSD, which is early life trauma, features of PTSD, but also personality changes, similar to borderline personality disorder. And I have seen a number of people coming with that label mm. rather than a label of borderline personality disorder. Yeah. 
And since someone I recently sent to a psychiatrist, because I thought it might have been borderline personality disorder, came back with, the, said, no, I don't think so, um, complex PTSD. So it's interesting you note that. Yeah, and that, that particular group, actually it's common in borderline as well, not only can have trouble with sleep itself, but trouble with sleepiness during the day and mm. distressing mm. dreams and nightmares at night. Yes. So often have a number of different sleep manifestations. So to help us understand the area of borderline personality disorder and some treatment approaches a bit better, we're fortunate enough to be able to talk to Blaise Aguirre, who's Assistant Professor of Psychiatry at Harvard Medical School and a child and adolescent psychiatrist. And Blaise works at McLean Hospital in Boston and has produced a number of resources on borderline personality disorder, including a book on mindfulness that I've talked about in previous episodes and a YouTube series, um, including um, what is borderline personality disorder and um, how you use mindfulness. So thanks very much, Blaise, for helping us out with the podcast. Yeah, you're welcome. It's uh, nice to come to you from Boston. And just to kick off, what is borderline personality disorder? Yeah, borderline personality disorder is a, is a confusing uh, disorder um, because it seems to present in different ways for different people. But it, at, at its core, uh, there are two uh, predominant and prominent features. And one is a, a tremendous difficulty in regulating day-to-day, moment-to-moment emotions, different from something like bipolar disorder where the mood state seemed to last for weeks, maybe even months, uh, in borderline personality disorder, it's, it's controlling highs and lows, typically secondary to something that's happened between the person and somebody else, uh, feeling rejected, feeling abandoned. And that's the second big feature, which is uh, difficulty in uh, regulating relationships. So these relationships uh, tend to be characterized by feeling very intensely about someone, idealizing them at times, devaluing them at other times, and then uh, a terrible fear that that person might uh, actually leave their lives. So so what we tend to see, and certainly in the clinical practice that I have, is this combination of difficulty in controlling emotions and difficulty in controlling relationships. And what do you think are some of the factors that might lead to someone developing some of those characteristics or borderline personality disorder? I practice a, a therapy known as dialectical behavior therapy, which is these days considered the gold standard for uh, treating borderline personality disorder. And the, the theory uh, that uh, kind of underpins dialectical behavior therapy or DBT is that um, a highly sensitive person, meaning a person that has very big reactions to seemingly small provocations, feels things more intensely, more deeply uh, than other people. And when they feel an emotion, it takes them longer to return to baseline. So somebody with, a, with, with, with that degree of sensitivity is brought up in what uh, the developer, Marshall Linehan, uh, the developer of DBT, uh, called the invalidating environment. And that is uh, an environment that told a person that they're inner experiences uh, were not real, uh, that a person was making a big deal out of it, that they should just get over it. So if you think about uh, a child, you know, being really sad about something um, and the parent is saying, look, that's, you know, that's nothing. You should just get over it. Of course, for people who can get over it, they typically do. But for people who go on to develop borderline personality disorder, it's much harder for them to actually control those experiences. So 
that degree of invalidation over time, often well-meaning by parents, uh, it's not that they, they want to damage their children, obviously, in a highly sensitive uh, person, that that combination of transactions over time is thought to uh, lead to borderline personality disorder. And then there's a genetic factor, which is about 60%, which is that uh, temperament appears to be about, uh, you know, inherited to a certain extent, so things like sensitivity and irritability. And so, so you have some biological factors and environmental factors. So I see people with borderline personality disorder presenting to me often with these two different poles of sleep symptoms. So at one extreme, it's the can't sleep, just cannot switch off and can't achieve sleep. And at the other extent, it's the constant feeling of exhaustion or tiredness through the day and almost a dissatisfaction with the waking experience. And a lot of that I can sort of understand how that might go with that inability to regulate emotions and difficulty with self-soothing. What are some other examples of things that can occur or issues that can occur for people in their life as a consequence of those emotion regulation problems? In particular for sleep, you know, um, in the early days, so I, I uh, opened a program in 2007 just to treat uh, people with borderline personality disorder. And I was, uh, you know, it's interesting that uh, you're talking about sleep because one of the early findings was that uh, many of the people with borderline personality disorder had great difficulties with sleep in the way that you describe. At first, I thought, okay, these people need sleep studies. And what was really interesting is that the second we put them in a sleep lab, it appeared that they were actually sleeping fine, but that their experience of sleep was that they hadn't slept at all. And then, you know, presenting them with the data um, was very confusing to them because they would experience not having slept, uh, but then they would have slept. And then, a certain, and then there were certainly some people that whose uh, sleep architecture was very poor, that they didn't seem to get into REM sleep and, and that. So, so it's possible that the sleep states were very, very, very shallow. And certainly if someone hasn't slept well, like with many psychiatric conditions uh, without having slept well, um, it's very difficult to regulate emotions and regulate the self and, and regulate relationships, that's, that's for sure. One of the um, other things that we find, uh, you know, particularly pertaining to sleep, is that many people that have borderline personality disorder have um, experienced trauma in their lives, um, physical, sexual, and other traumas. And so uh, many of the uh, people that we admit have comorbid uh, PTSD, and uh, they are either terrified of going to sleep um, uh, because bad things happened at night, um, or that they'll have nightmares, um, or when they do go to sleep, they actually experience nightmares. And the nightmares can be trauma-related or, or, or not. And that's really interesting, your observation that you, you, know, you saw when you put people in the sleep laboratory. I see exactly that as well, and I think it's partly a failure of our sleep classification system, the REM, non-REM, that's almost blind to sympathetic activation or the monoaminergic system, which is really the system that's an issue. And if we look at surrogate features for that, like arousals, for example, or alpha activity or fast wave activity in the EEG, it's there, but just that um, conventional sleep staging system doesn't see it. And that can lead to this paradox of you telling someone who already is not feeling well grounded that what you believe is actually not true. And in fact, and that, you know, it doesn't go well in terms of a therapy. And I haven't found that works well with people. Yeah, no, no, that's exactly right. Well, because you're having then to explain the the contradiction that that presents with, on the one hand, uh, telling someone that they've actually slept according to the sleep study. And on the other hand, that they feel so exhausted and that they haven't slept. 
so you know, and then and and then how do you do that? And and I think that that this is where you know some of our patients uh, are very interested in the brain biology uh, and uh, of sleep, and 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 if you target some of the neurotransmitter systems and you, and you look at uh, arousal and uh, and and, tar- and and even using behavioral skills target some of that hyper arousal that you can you know actually start to get to improvement the other the other side is i de- definitely have patients who will tell me that they spent the entire day in bed in and out of sleep in many cases uh, that uh, is uh, has to do with uh, avoidance and avoiding certain situations uh, but they you know certainly when we speak to their parents they often say that the child has spent all day in bed sleeping uh, and it's hard to imagine, but you know some of them will insist that they do. You know, with with um, with hypersomnolence, you uh, we have found uh, a host of whole host of patients. I mean, a small percentage, but they're there nevertheless um, that have presented with sleep apnea. So they're exhausted all the time. Um, you know, the the environment then tells them you shouldn't be exhausted. You got enough sleep. You shouldn't be tired. Uh, but um, you know, their O2 sets have dropped overnight and, uh, you know, dealing with that has actually improved their lives quite dramatically. But that's invalid. You know, we talked, I talked earlier about invalidation from the system, but that's when we get invalidation from our medical system. You know, we tell people, you you should feel rested because you've slept or or you tell me you're not sleeping, but the studies show that you are sleeping. And, and so there's where there can be some invalidation because there's very little in it for the patient subjectively to get a good night's rest and say that they haven't gotten one. I certainly agree with that. And part a sleep study is part of my workup when I'm working with people with borderline personality disorder because, yeah, we sometimes find other sleep disorders. And I do think being able to sort of unpack what's going on with sleep and out it, make it tangible, something that someone can actually look at and I can look at the EEG with them, for example, on the screen – and talk through, yeah, you know what? Yes, you're getting the right type of non-REM REM distribution, but hey, look at all these arousals and look at these sort of bursts in heart rate. It shows that sympathetic system's really activated. It can actually help them get a bit more engaged in that long-term approach that we need to help turn down some of that sympathetic activation. It's interesting that that you're saying that because I, I very much agree with you. Um, I have I tell the, uh, my patients that the body doesn't lie. What do I mean by that? That you know, um, often they'll say, well, I'm not upset with you. I'm not angry at you. And and, and so for some of them, I started getting them to wear a, um, a pulse oximeter. And you can see during interactions that, so say their resting heart rate is 75, and all of a sudden you say something that is really upsetting to them, although you might not pick it up, and maybe they've learned over time to mask their uh, their experience. All of a sudden you see a spike in uh, in pulse, and I would probably imagine that it was uh, 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 paired with uh, concomitant uh, rise in blood pressure. But they tell you that they're not aroused or that they're not agitated, but then their, their, uh, their pulse oximeter says your, blood, your, your pulse rate has just gone up. And, so, and that's, we, I mean, we know that uh, uh, there's a lot of evidence in this. Actually, we know that people with borderline personality disorder have poor vagal tone. You know, there's some controversy about the polyvagal theory and stuff like that. But I, I, I definitely see that the ability to regulate for, for uh, my patients with borderline personality disorder is very poor. And I do think that the adrenaline or adrenaline system is, it's overstimulated. 
And, and so what mm-hmm. are some of the psychologically based strategies that you can use to help turn down some of that overstimulation? One of the things that, that I'm very proud of, I suppose, and I'm not proud of it for myself, but I'm very happy about it for our patients, is that many of our patients come on multiple medications because they're so exhausted. Uh, so what happens is that our psychiatrists you know, continue to add medication. So they come in on very big doses of uh, mood stabilizers and antipsychotics and stuff like that. So, I mean, uh, eventually you get some degree of behavioral control because you've shut down the brain so much and maybe they're sleeping or, or, or maybe they're not. And so our task has been to remove a lot of the psychopharmacology that really hasn't been all that effective and teach some of the behavioral skills that are needed uh, to uh, to regulate. And um, uh, the the core to dialectical behavior therapy um, is is mindfulness practice and meditation. So so we get our patients to to practice uh, mindfulness and meditation. It's a little bit too out there for some of our patients uh, who who think that uh, you know they don't want to necessarily go down that path. Um, uh, and uh, but then you know we get to some basic stuff, and, and you know we say, listen, if you if you eat well and you exercise regularly and you you know have a good bedtime routine, you actually start to feel a, a lot better. So so even if it's um, a little bit of daily exercise, whether it's yoga or walking or jogging, you know, uh, making sure that they pay attention to the impact of food uh, on sleep. I mean, we used to see a lot of people who would. To uh, binge eating, especially at night, and especially high carb uh, diets, uh, which uh, would would be very activating. So, so paying attention to what food does with sleep, what exercise does with sleep, what um, uh, mood altering substances uh, does to sleep. Now, I, I, I have a, a student population mostly, and um, some of them, you know, want to pull all nighters, as they call them, uh, in order to get papers done and study for exams. So they'll use, you know, a lot of caffeine at night, stimulants and other things like that. So, you know, I mean, there's some obvious mood-altering substances that can actually impact sleep uh, pretty adversely. And then, and then anything that would lead to a certain degree of dependence, uh, whether it's benzodiazepines, uh, uh, THC, marijuana, um, where, you know, maybe they do get some, some sleep, but at great uh, psychological co- uh, cost over time. Again, here's where the mindfulness piece comes in is, is a very careful paying of attention to the impact of various things on what happens uh, to, to, to sleep. So when we've used mindfulness in insomnia, in some respects it allows people a window into some of the emotions and thoughts that sleep and their sleep experiences may give rise to. And partly what we're trying to do is change people's relationship with sleep. So for instance, if there's been trauma and they're terrified of going to sleep, but uh, the trauma happened uh, in a certain context. I mean, we want context-dependent learning to take place. To say, look, you're not, you're not in that context. You're safe at home. You're safe in your in, in your in your room. Um, you're not in that other situation where something maybe awful happened. And we want you to start noticing that your body is is it's it's almost it's uh, it's sending alarm bells, like it's sending a fire alarm when there isn't a fire actually. So fire alarms are really important when there's a fire. Uh, and fire alarms might be important if there's a, a fire drill, but they're certainly not that important if there isn't a fire. And actually, it can, it can you know, give you false information. So, so to start to make that distinction between 
that hyperarousal that we were just talking about in the context of safety versus hyperarousal in the context of danger. Uh, and to be able to make that distinction, I think, is very important. And, you know, for, for um, patients who can do that, uh, there definitely is tremendous benefit to that. How do you bring that in as part of DBT, or how does the mindfulness um, interdigitate yeah. with that? Although uh, DBT seems to be a very simple uh, uh, treatment because there's four uh, skill sets. Uh, there's mindfulness, there's emotion regulation, there's distress tolerance, and there's interpersonal effectiveness, which is, uh, you know, which target all of the, the, the deficits um, of people with borderline personality disorder or the skills deficits. So, for instance, if, if what you notice is that, I don't know, drinking red wine gives you headaches and a bad night's sleep, uh, and not drinking red wine or having a beer doesn't do so, uh, then paying very, very careful attention. So, so we get actually people to track um, their experience on something called diary cards, which is really a, a sort of a, a, a daily register of, of, of functioning. You know, maybe they're tracking emotions or tracking relationships or tracking substance use or self-injury or suicidal thoughts. But if they're tracking sleep, it's, it's okay. You're tracking sleep. What happens to sleep after exercise? What happens to sleep if you, uh, if you stop having caffeinated coffee at two, uh, 2 o'clock in the afternoon versus 12 o'clock in the morning? What happens if you go to bed at 10 versus at midnight? What happens when you have your TV on uh, late at night versus not? Uh, what happens if there's somebody in the house versus not? So, so we get people to, to do a, a kind of a map of their sleep habits, things that enhance sleep and things that uh, uh, worsen sleep. And that, this is where mindful uh, attention is, is really important, that without doing that, uh, you know, it's a guess, really. So that's the sort of DBT mindfulness sort of package. Moving forward, you know, what, what are you looking as sort of add-ons or the next types of strategies to add into some of the psychologically based therapies? As I say, there's some people who, um, who, who don't necessarily like um, uh, mindfulness as a as a modality, either because they feel that it's too tied to uh, ancient religious ideas or um, it's too new agey uh, for them. So the other, um, some of the other ideas uh, that I think are important, uh, other ways of monitoring that hyper-aroused state. So um, are there wearables that will, that will tell you, look, you know, your pulse rate is up, uh, your O2 sets are down, your blood pressure is up, so that uh, by paying attention to that, you know, then you can work on even breathing exercises or maybe going for a walk or starting to, you know, uh, turn down the TV, um, you know, maybe an hour ahead of, uh, of time and then, and then monitoring and then seeing what happens to your, your body's sort of arousal systems um, uh, and, and your thoughts. So, so maybe um, body monitoring uh, devices. Uh, and then, you know, I mean, uh, certainly that there, there are people who, who do have uh, a primary or secondary sleep uh, disorders that, uh, that might actually benefit from, you know, if somebody has sleep apnea, um, uh, if somebody has other physical illnesses, say diabetes, uh, you know, when, when their blood sugars are dropping maybe in the middle of the night or other breathing problems, you know, you, you definitely want to uh, rule those things out. You know, certainly tracking sleep and sleep hygiene is, is uh, very, very important. Uh, treating uh, comorbidities, uh, we definitely get mood disorders and um, other uh, psychotic disorders, substance use disorders. Treating those comorbidities is important. 
you know, it'd be great to find some rescue medications for the occasion when a person really hasn't slept and, 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 and they're just exhausted and, and maybe could benefit from a little bit of something. You know, we commonly see diphenhydramine, uh, trazodone, deserol here, benzodiazepines used, um, some of the other uh, sleep aids. Uh, people use a lot of atypical antipsychotics. Uh, uh, we try to stay away from them and use them as a, as a as medications of last resort if nothing else is uh, are working. And, and for some people, they actually do benefit quite a bit from them and without necessarily developing tolerance or dependence on them. So thanks very much for those really great insights, Blaise. Yeah, you're, you're welcome. And uh, thanks to you, David, for, for reaching out and, uh, and certainly to all your patients, uh, especially the ones with borderline personality disorder, sending them a lot of compassion from here in, in Boston and uh, hope that they're able to get a good night's uh, good night's rest. Great interview, Dave. He must be a true fanboy, really, of, <laughs> of Blaze, as you know how many um, books and things you've Read of his? Yeah, exactly. So having read, <laughs> did having, you declare your fan status? I did. So, so having <laughs> having read the the workbook about mindfulness and watched some of the YouTube videos, I thought Blaze would be really good. And of course, you know he's great. You know, really from that clinical experience and his passion for mm. trying to improve education and people's understanding, which really fits with your where you and I are coming from, because we're very passionate about those same things as well. Yeah, yeah. it was just a real privilege. Oh, he was great, wasn't he? He was, um, I mean, clearly a very good clinician. Yeah, very kind. You know, yeah, that whole when we said something about um, not he was just there to support and educate, not blame and shame, something like that. That was a, one of the lines I sort of I remember thinking that resonated with me. In that sometimes, particularly people with borderline personality disorder, yeah, they do um, people don't necessarily um, treat them necessarily nicely. There's a lot of judgment or, you know, harsh language around how difficult they are and how manipulative they might be and those sorts of things. So it was nice to hear his balanced approach to, to this group of people and his passion for it. And interestingly, you know, as you and I discussed offline, the treatment approach is actually not dissimilar to the treatment approach we take with anybody else. So yeah, we use exactly, a, yeah. sort of a challenge thinking and behaviour around sleep with a CBT type approach, look at helping reducing arousal with either a mindfulness or ACT type approach. And that's really a very similar approach. Again, I'd highly recommend the resources that Blaze has generated with books on DBT and recent book, DBT for Dummies, which he told me was actually a bestseller on Amazon for a couple of days, which really shows you the, um, the need for this sort of communication. And the series of videos on YouTube that McLean Hospital and their Borderline Personality Disorder Treatment Service have developed, it was around 2017, 2018, really good good education series, both for people with Borderline Personality Disorder, but also clinicians and their families to be able to help understand. So we'll take advantage of your expertise, Blaze. What's a clinical tip for people working with people with borderline personality disorder? Well, I'll, t- I'll tell you the one that uh, that changed my uh, mind about how I experience people with borderline personality disorder, and that was the idea that they were doing the very best that they could. And um, that's because historically I had been told that these were very manipulative, you know, attention-seeking people. And so the idea that 
uh, when somebody is suffering with conditions like borderline personality disorder, that they're doing the best that they can, given their condition, was was really a very benign way of seeing uh, uh, people. Because then what it allowed me to do is to teach and help rather than blame and judge. So when you see somebody who is struggling with whatever that they're doing, that is the best that they can do, given their present circumstances. Maura, what's your pick of the month? Well, there's a, a book that's about to be released. I think it's released online, but I, I saw a date that um, it's coming at the end of 29th of December 2021. And it's by Colin Espy, and it's called Overcoming Insomnia, the second edition. It's a self-help guide using CBT techniques. And Colin Espy is a professor based in the UK, affiliations with Oxford and, and many other institutes. Probably I would consider him the, you know, the grandfather or one of, of, you know, insomnia treatment, particularly, you know, non-drug approaches. I have a you know, psychology background and I'm just so excited. I think this is something I'd want for Christmas. <laughs> the first edition was um, in 2012. So very keen to see how it's different. And he is someone who, him and Charles Moran, I used everything I know about insomnia back in the 90s. I just learned from from their books. So I can highly recommend. And the good thing about this is that it's self-help. So it's not the, the books used to be for clinicians and now the, his books are more, uh, or some of them at least, are for people who are struggling and they can step themselves through. Well, I think it's a good idea for perhaps sleep clinicians, GPs, people who want to send their clients to perhaps a psychologist to do some CBTI but can't get them in anywhere, I'd recommend getting half a dozen of these books, for instance, and, and lend them out to people because they can set themselves through some just really important evidence-based simple things that might, will, will make all the difference, actually. They'll turn them around. And they may still need to see a sleep uh, psychologist, but maybe not. So but certainly in the meantime, so I highly recommend it. We'll put the link in the show notes. Yeah, and it really fits with Colin Espy's stepped care approach in insomnia management from his sort of paper in 2009 of at the base we've got those sort of self-help guides and then you step it up to maybe more an online CBT that may be supported online CBT and then you step it up to one-on-one sort of work with a therapist. So having something to cover all those bases is really important. Absolutely, particularly um, when there's maybe minimal comorbidity. That's that's where the self-help book would be really, really great. Uh, But even in really complex presentations, it'll it'll help, help a little bit, I'm sure. What's your pick of the month, Dave? Well, it's really been a saga that's been going on for the last six months. It's the gift that keeps on giving. And that's a um, CPAP recall from Philips. So in June of this year, Philips announced they were recalling CPAP devices. Most of them were manufactured in the last 10 years because of an issue with acoustic foam. And that's created a whole lot of logistic challenges because um, there are hundreds of thousands of people in Australia and millions of people around the world whose CPAP machines have now had to be replaced. And that's created issues with the supply chain and, you know, a whole lot of other things about access CPAP treatments. And then recently the FDA has been looking at the foam Philips have used to repair and replace the old machines and there's questions about that foam. So this is just an ongoing saga that's really kept both physicians working with people with CPAP in the last six months on our toes, trying to keep abreast of what's going on and keep people on treatment but it's also been a bigger saga for people who've had the Philips CPAP devices trying to work out how to find advice, how to look at getting their device repaired, 
um, or replaced. So it's not a peak in terms of something I really love, but it's something that's really been sort of forefront in the field of sort of clinical sleep medicine, particularly in the sleep apnea space in the last six months. And important for people to know that that's an issue that is having broader impacts on accessibility to sleep apnea treatments. What can we look out for, Dave, in in coming episodes? So in addition to looking at impacts of sleep deprivation and potentially long COVID, I'm still trying to find the right person to talk to about some of the pathophysiology of fatigue and the underpinning mechanisms of fatigue. Tied up in that is another brain system called the glymphatic system that's important in sleep. So I'm just trying to get my head around, do we get someone about glymphatics on to fit in with fatigue or do we do glymphatics as a separate topic? And we may actually end up doing that as a separate topic. That sounds good. We haven't done glymphatics, I don't think, have we? Or now as an episode? No, we've tended to be yeah, we've tended to be more on the sort of clinical outcomes mm. rather than some of the physiological changes that happen yeah. in the brain during sleep. So yeah, I think that'd be a good topic to talk about. So thanks everyone for listening to this episode. We're always keen to feature early career researchers. So if you are a researcher and you've published a paper, let us know because we'd love to look at that paper, look at the area, talk to you about it. And if you've got any suggestions for topics for the podcast, email us at podcast at sleephub.com.au. Of course, remember, if you like the podcast, review us on iTunes, subscribe, tell your friends and colleagues about it. We'd be really grateful. Thanks a lot. Bye. This podcast is not intended as a substitute for your own independent health professional's advice, diagnosis or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider within your country or place of residency with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition.